Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Sunday, as we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, Paul was talking about the mystery, 
And I told you that the word mystery, the Greek word mysterion, means a previously unknown truth, something that already existed as true, it just simply wasn't known. In the context of Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, he was talking about the introduction and inclusion of Gentiles into the church of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, through the Jewish God, and so now that became the mystery that Paul was unveiling. And in the midst of saying that God was a God who told truths and then allowed people to understand it over the course of time, I made mention of the fact that God has names, names that he himself has given himself, that are revelatory names. God is in the practice of revealing himself because fundamentally we simply could not know, would not know anything about God unless he actually told us about himself. God is a revelatory God. That's why we know anything about him. Had he not said anything about himself, had he not told us about himself, we as mere human creatures would have no way of knowing him or comprehending him. And then this past Wednesday, as we were working our way through the book of Isaiah, we talked about the God that Isaiah knows, the God who is a burning fire, a consuming fire. And we talked a bit about the fact that that notion of God as a judge, that notion of God as so righteous and so holy that his holiness demands appropriate justice. That's a God that seems largely unknown in the church these days because people have invented a much more likable God, a much more squishy, lovable God than the God who is actually described in the Bible. So between Wednesday and today, I have been furiously making notes. Furiously would be the verb that I use there. I've been just furiously making notes even though that's probably an adverb if you're actually. (laughs) Because it occurred to me that it's probably time for us to just stop and think about, yet again, the God who we actually do serve and to understand him according to the names that he gives himself. Because I've made mention in passing several times that the names of God are revelatory names, But it's been many, many years since we've just gone through and looked at those names and talked about the names that God himself gives himself in order to tell about himself to people who otherwise wouldn't know anything about him. So this morning is mostly just going to be dedicated to looking at the names of God, especially the names of God in the Old Testament. Now, even though there are names given to Jesus in the New Testament, many of them are simply descriptors. So we're not going to be talking about like Jesus calling himself the door or the way or the truth or the life or the lamb. Those are all descriptors of different characteristics of Christ. We're going to concentrate this morning on the names of God in the Old Testament Names that are specifically revelatory in nature. My hope being 
that when we get done this morning, you will have an even greater comprehension of who the God of the Bible actually is, because as I said Wednesday night and repeated again this morning, there seems to be a lacking within the church at large of who God really is. What does he say about himself? What sort of nature and character does he demonstrate? How does he reveal himself? People like the God of their imagination. This morning we're going to talk about the real God of the Bible and see if we can get rid of some of the imaginary ideas. So that's the plan for this morning. The very first name of God that we run into is in the very first book, the very first chapter, the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1 is the first place where God reveals himself through a name, Elohim. It is used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, making it far and away the most popular name of God. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God, that English translation, God, is actually the name Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Well, what is that telling us then about him? This name is used 2,000 times in the Old Testament. You would think that we would all be familiar with it and that we would all know what it meant because God uses it of himself repeatedly. Well, I went to look up the word to understand the word, and the best way to understand it is to take a look at the Septuagint and to understand what even the Greek translators thought about the name Elohim. How did they translate it? This particular translation comes out of the BDAG. You may not be familiar with that. It's the Bauer, Danker, Arnton, Gingrich, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. I know, everybody looked at Micah impressed. (laughs) Here is their definition of Elohim, and this is the best definition I have found. A transcendent being who exercises extraordinary control in human affairs, who is responsible for the bestowal of unusual benefits. It specifically refers to the monotheistic God of Israel. In other words, when we say the word sovereign, a word that we use a lot around here, we say a lot that God is sovereign we're describing him the same way as the name Elohim. That name is speaking of a being who is not like us, who is utterly other than us, who is transcendent above us. But he also has this complete control over the activities of human beings. And on top of that, bestows blessings and bestows knowledge and bestows wisdom and understanding. And bestows gifts to human beings. Even though he's not one of us, he is the one who sits above all of us, controls what happens to all of us, and gives blessings to all of us. That is the name Elohim. Again, the most common used name for God in the Old Testament. Now, 
whenever you see a Hebrew name, whenever you see a Hebrew word that ends in the English letters I am, that is pluralizing the word. So from the very beginning, when God said that he was the one who made heaven and earth and gave himself the name Elohim, he was describing himself as a plurality, even though he is, as we just read, the monotheistic God of Israel. And yet he speaks of himself right away as a plurality, which is why the translators of the Bible would then translate phrases like, let us make man in our image. They pluralize the pronouns because it is a pluralized singular God who is speaking. So the Trinity is introduced in Genesis 1.1. You don't get any further than the first verse in the Bible, and immediately you are introduced to this three-in-one God who we've been talking about. The second most common name for God is what is commonly referred to as the Tetragrammaton. In English letters, YHWH. That's the name that God gives himself in Genesis 2-4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now, in most of your translations, whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is a translation of this name, which is impossible to actually pronounce correctly because it's all consonants. And so the Jews, in order to pronounce that name, gave it vowel sounds. And so typically it is pronounced Yahweh. And so when you hear me say Yahweh, that's what I'm referring to, this name that God has given to himself. Now, really importantly, and this is what we're going to spend a good deal of the morning on, this name Yahweh is a revelatory name. As we continue looking into the ways that that name has been passed down to us and through the generations of Israel and through the generations of the church, you're going to see that God uses this particular name in order to tell us things about himself. So it's a revelatory name. According to Jewish tradition, that name is too holy a name to say out loud. That mere human beings, men of unclean lips, who dwell among people of unclean lips, that that would be too high and holy a name for we unclean people to actually say. The Hebrew letters, though I don't know how to write them, and you would read them from right to left, are yud Hey vav Hey, And so this is the English transliteration of those letters, Y-H-W-H. While Yahweh is first used in Genesis 2, God doesn't reveal himself as Yahweh until Exodus 3, 2, which says, and then the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, this is God beginning to reveal himself 
to Moses. So he sends his angel to speak on behalf of Yahweh. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire. You know the story from the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and yet the bush was not consumed. And then God begins telling Moses who he is and what he's about. It's in that context that Moses asks, once God gives him the command, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He knows that Pharaoh has this whole pantheon of gods. He knows that Pharaoh has a god for everything. So Moses quite naturally asks, well then, since you say, I'm supposed to tell Pharaoh to let your people go, who are you? Yahweh says, I am that I am. This is God revealing himself. I am the God who is. All the other gods don't actually exist. I am the God who exists. I am. And so oftentimes, the Tetragrammaton is defined as the God who is. Because in the first place where he reveals himself as Yahweh, he then reveals about himself that he is the God who actually exists. You go tell Pharaoh, I am sent you I was reading the other day I was thinking about whether I was going to tell you this I was reading the other day about the legacy standard bible this is a bible that comes out of the master's seminary John MacArthur's organization and in the preface to the legacy standard bible they help define Yahweh they help to define this word and so I'm going to read to you from the preface of the Legacy Standard Bible. It says, in the scriptures, the name of God is significant, and understandably so. Traditionally, the translation God renders the Hebrew word Elohim. And likewise, the word Lord is a translation of Adonai, which we haven't talked about yet. That'll be the next name. But in the Legacy Standard Bible, God's covenant name is rendered as Yahweh. So they add the syllable sound A and E to it so that it's a pronounceable name. The meaning and the implication of this name is God's self-deriving, ongoing, and never-ending existence. Those three words that God is self-deriving and also ongoing and also never-ending is kind of the essence of God saying, I am. I simply am because I am. That's who I am. He is self-deriving. That means nobody created him. Nobody started him. He doesn't have a beginning place. He exists because he exists. He is self-deriving, he is ongoing, and he has a never-ending existence. Exodus 3, 14 and 15 shows that God himself considered it important for his people to know his name. He revealed his own name to us. And then, because of the Jewish tradition that thought that name was too high and too holy, they started using other versions or other nicknames for God 
rather than the name that God said about himself. And so the Legacy Standard Bible is trying to return to the name of God that God himself gave himself. And I agree with that. Reading again from their preface, it says, The effect of revealing God's name is his distinction from all other gods and his expression of intimacy with the nation of Israel. Such a dynamic is a prevalent characteristic of the scriptures as Yahweh appears in the Old Testament, that name of God, over 6,800 times. If God calls himself, here, I'll put it this way. My name's Jim. You all know that, right? But if you all decided to give me a nickname so that you couldn't say the name Jim, you wouldn't say the name, hey, old bald guy, or whatever nickname you opted for, at some point, I'm going to say to you, you know, you can use my name. My name is Jim. I'm going I'm to know if you say that name that you mean me. It's the same thing with God. God has revealed himself by his name, Yahweh, over 6,800 times. But now when we read modern translations, we read the word God or we read the title Lord and we don't call him by his name. And he has revealed himself by his name. The Legacy Standard Bible goes on to say, in addition to Yahweh, which is the full name of God, the Old Testament also includes references to God by a shorter version of his name, which is Yah. By itself, God's name Yah may not be as familiar, but its appearance is instantly recognizable in Hebrew names and Hebrew words like Zechariah which means Yah, or God, remembers. That's what Zechariah means. Or a word that we all use all the time, hallelujah. Yah. We're saying praise, glory to God when we say hallelujah. And so that is also a shortened version of this name, Yahweh. Okay, now I mentioned a moment ago that there was a third name that is very common, very popular in the Old Testament, and it is the word Adonai. That word means the Lord, the Master. One of the definitions I found for Adonai is the absolute sovereign, the divine king. When you see in your modern translations, capital L lowercase o-r-d, God, then you know that you're looking at the word Adonai in the Hebrew language. In the Old Testament, Adonai occurs 434 times. Okay, so 434 for Adonai, 6,800 times for Yahweh, over 2,000 times for Elohim, Wouldn't you think we as Bible-believing Christian folk would be more familiar with those names? Because these are the names by which God is communicating with us. Adonai occurs repeatedly in Isaiah. It's one of Isaiah's favorite names for Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God. You see that phraseology over and over again. Lord God, Adonai Yahweh. 
It occurs over 200 times in the book of Ezekiel alone. So the prophets are very familiar with it and very comfortable using it. But it's first used in Genesis 15 too. All three of these names, these very common names that God wants us to know, all appear in the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis. As soon as God began talking to human beings, he began revealing himself via these names. Genesis 15.2 says, After these things, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, Adonai Yahweh. He knew it was Yahweh, but he also wanted to speak of Yahweh as his absolute Lord and master, the sovereign one who is over him. And that's what that word combination means. When you see capital L, lowercase o-r-d, God, after that, it is always a combination of Adonai, Yahweh. And so when you say that name, when you read that name, recognize that that is God revealing to you that he is not just the God that is, but he is the God who is the absolute sovereign and Lord over everything and everyone. So even when you say the name God or Lord God, you are admitting to what he has already revealed about himself, which is that he is indeed the sovereign. And that's why we use that word a lot here. Adonai is parallel to the names Yahweh and the name Jehovah. We're going to start talking about Jehovah this morning. During the third century AD, in order to avoid contravening the commandment of God that says, don't take the name of the Lord God in vain, that is the reason that Adonai is oftentimes used as a substitute for Yahweh even in our current translations. Rather than use this very high holy name, they would start substituting names like Adonai. Okay, so let's start talking about the revelatory names. The first is going to be the L names. Now, the same way that a moment ago I told you that Yah is a shortened version of a name for God, so is El, which is a shortened version of Elohim. The same way that I told you Elohim is pluralized, El is a singular name for God, referring to the Father God. The first of the El names you're probably familiar with if you know anything about contemporary Christian music, the name El Shaddai. There's a very popular song by that name. El Shaddai occurs in the Old Testament only seven times. It has two primary meanings. When the Septuagint was translated into Greek from the Hebrew, the word that they chose to use to translate El Shaddai was the word pantocrator. Pan, all, every, crater, power. All power. It's why we say that God is omnipotent, omnipotent. He has all the power. That's what the name El Shaddai essentially means. He is the one who is powerful. He is the one who can accomplish whatever he wants to. I mean, for heaven's sake, he spoke the universe into existence. This is the God who has all the authority, all the power, 
And therefore, as I often like to point out, since God named himself the proper name, I am the God of all power, how much power does that leave for you? That'd be none, because he's the God of all power. So whatever you're doing, he's the one empowering it. If you're breathing right now, if you know your own name, he empowered you to do that. Whatever you know, whatever you think, whatever you have, wherever you go, he's the one that empowers that. If we know that about him, then we ought to be continually conscious of the fact that the all-powerful one is continually with us, proven by the fact that if he weren't, you couldn't do anything. The first use of that name is in Genesis 17.1. It says, and now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. This is God revealing himself. This is God explaining himself. I am El Shaddai. I have all the power. Therefore, God could say to him, walk before me and be blameless. Because I'm the one with all the power. I'm the one with all the authority. Now, would Abram have known that God existed and that he was empowering everything if God had not told him? No, there's no way he's going to know that. So that's why I said that these names are revelatory. Every time that God reveals a name for himself, he is saying something about himself. These early names that we are looking at all seem to have a common theme to them, which is, I am God Almighty. I'm the God who has all the authority. I am the God who is the maker of heaven and earth, and I am. I have all the power. I'm the sovereign. I'm the one in control. Those are the names that God reveals of himself within the first 17 chapters of Genesis. He starts right out by saying, let me tell you about me. I'm in charge of everything. I have all the power. I have all the authority. I am the only one who is. All other supposed gods are not. And I am the God who made everything the maker of heaven and earth, that's the kind of power I have. And he said all that about himself by the time you get to Genesis 17. What do you think he's trying to tell you? Again, this is why we say he's sovereign. He's in charge. The other meaning, though, of this word El Shaddai, and it's demonstrated by God's own use of that name, is that he is the God who gives nourishment and blessing. In other words, he is the God who is our sustainer. The reason that you continue breathing, the reason that you continue eating or knowing things, the reason that you're here today listening is because he is the one who has sustained you. Genesis 28. God reveals himself yet again And uses the name El Shaddai, but this time not within the framework of I'm God Almighty, but within the framework of I'm the God who provides. I'm the God who sustains. Genesis 28, I'm going to read the first five verses. 
So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, saying to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may become a multitude of peoples. May he also give you the blessings of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you so that you may possess the land where you live as a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So this tells us something else about the name El Shaddai, that the one who has all the power is also the one who is handing out everything we have, which makes sense. If he has all the power and then he's empowering absolutely everything, then whatever we have, whatever blessings have come our way, whatever abilities we have that are sustained, the very fact that we still exist would all be under the hand of his sovereign power. So when you say the word El Shaddai, you're saying much more than he's the big, strong, in-charge God who's unfeeling and doesn't care about you. El Shaddai also reveals that he's the God who cares about you utterly and completely, who provides for you, who sustains you, and who is taking you through this lifetime because he is the one who has all the power. You got it? El Shaddai is a really good name. You'll also find it in Genesis 35, 11. You'll find it in Genesis 43, 14 and Genesis 48, 3, because I can see the clock on the wall and there's still a long way to go. We're not going to take the time to read those, but pick up a Bible one day and have a look at them and know that every time you read God there, you're talking about El Shaddai. The next El name is El Elyon. Have you heard this name ever? Because it's a great name. And it's a crime that we're not familiar with it. El Elyon means the most high God. The lifted up God. The beginning of the book of Isaiah. Soon as Isaiah begins to describe God, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He is the exalted God, the most high God. That name, El Elyon, occurs 28 times in the Old Testament. It occurs 19 times in the Psalms. David speaks frequently of the most high God, which makes sense because God, when he laid out his commandments, said, there's no other God before me. He's essentially saying, I'm it, I'm the only it, and I'm the top of the heap. I'm, I'm the only God. I'm the most high God. I'm the one at the top. Whatever there is in creation, whatever there is among people, whatever exists, I'm above it all. I am exalted and lifted up. I am the most high God. It expresses his extreme majesty and his highest preeminence. So when those two words are combined... El Elyon is usually translated as the most exalted or the most high God, like in Psalm 57.2. El Elyon is first used in Genesis 14. So these are all names that God has revealed to us 
right away in Genesis. There isn't a name yet that I have named that isn't found in the early going in Genesis as God is revealing himself to human beings. Genesis 14, I'm going to read 18 to 24. This is the story of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was a priest of El Elyon. He was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And said, blessed be Abram of El Elyon, the Most High God. He keeps referring to God by this name. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Okay, that helps define El Elyon. He owns everything. Heaven, earth, all of it, he's in charge of it. He owns it all. And blessed be El Elyon, the Most High God, who has handed over your enemies to you. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High. Now he has combined Yahweh with the idea of El Elyon, I have sworn to him, he is the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, so that you do not say, I made Abram rich. So that name, El Elyon, the Most High God, is revealed through Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God. And so then Abram responds by using that name. We're both talking about the Most High God. The next El name is El Olam. El Olam means the everlasting God. Again, another characteristic of God. He owns everything. And he's in charge of everything. He's sovereign over everything. And he is the all-existent God. He is the everlasting God. The God of eternity. The God of the universe. The God who we refer to as the ancient of days. Olam literally means forever or eternity or everlasting. So El Olam can be translated as the eternal God. El Olam is first used in guess what book? Genesis 21. You only get 21 chapters into Genesis before God reveals himself as the everlasting God. Genesis 21 verse 33 says, Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol The commander of his army got up and returned to the land of the Philistines and Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba and there he called on the name of the Lord El Olam, the everlasting God. And Abraham resided in the land of the Philistines for many days. So again, God is talking. Again, God is revealing himself. God is telling you who he is and what he is like. Now the El names all kind of cover great big swaths of who God is, as I think you've recognized. There is one more L name. And in fact, if you would, Tom, look up Isaiah 9, 6. We're all going to be familiar with it. If you would, Steve, look up Isaiah 10, 21. These are two of the places where you're going to see the name El Gabor. 
El Gabor is translated as the mighty God. This is the God who fights for you in battle. This is the God who defends you. This is the God who stands for you. Isaiah 10, 21 uses the name El Gabor specifically of God the Father. Steve is going to read that now. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That's El Gabor. But now something really interesting. Now it gets theological. Because not only is God the Father identified as El Gabor, but in Isaiah 9, where Isaiah is prophesying about the son to come, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders. And then he starts saying, and he shall be called. These are names. And one of the names that the Messiah will be called is El Gabor. That's really interesting because now we know God the Father is El Gabor. Now we know that God the Son is El Gabor. This ought to help again in your Trinitarian theology, but it also demonstrates that Jesus is in fact God. He is in fact deity. Tom's going to read Isaiah 9, 6 for us. If you want to start reading before that, feel free. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Mighty God, El Gabor, is the Hebrew word there. Okay, so that kind of wraps up the El names. I told you earlier about the name... Adonai. And I told you that this name is unpronounceable. And so in order to avoid saying this very high and holy name, in order to create a version of it that the Jews were comfortable speaking, they took the vowel sounds from Adonai and they added it to the tetragrammaton and they came up with That's the English version of that name, Jehovah. The Hebrew is Yahoah. If you take those vowel sounds, add Y-H-W-H, Yahoah. The Y and the J, of course, over the course of time, change the way that we pronounce them. Same thing that's happened in, like, the Spanish language. If you see a J, you pronounce it as an H. You don't say, hey, Jose. It's, it's Jose. Uh, Tom told me today that he met a yard guy whose name is Jesus. And so that name, Jehovah, is an attempt to verbalize this name without actually saying the high and holy name. The next names that I'm going to be going through are what are referred to as the Jehovah names. But every time that I say Jehovah something, recognize that it's actually Yahweh something. It's God repeating his name, Yahweh, 
which he has revealed to men. Men would not know that that was his name. And then he's going to modify that name. For instance, the first of the Jehovah names. We find in Exodus 17, 14, we find the word, the name Jehovah Nisi. It only occurs once, right there in Exodus 17. I'm going to read Exodus 17, verses 14 to 16. And the Lord said to Moses, that's Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and he called the name of that altar. I'm reading from the King James. If you have a King James, the next thing you will see is he called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. What that means is the Lord is our banner. The Lord is the flag that we hold up on a pole. The Lord is the captain that we march under. He's the God who is our banner. For he said, because Yahweh has sworn that Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here's the NASB rendering of that same section. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial, recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly wipe out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he named it, The Lord is my banner. So the King James didn't translate it. They just moved it from the Hebrew into the English translation, whereas the NASB actually translated it, and it means the Lord is my banner. The next name is Jehovah Ra'ah. Every one of you, when I tell you what this name means, every one of you will be able, guaranteed, to think of where it is said most prominently, because Jehovah Ra'ah means the Lord is my shepherd. See, you all went to Psalm 23, didn't you? But that is exactly the name that David used to demonstrate another characteristic of God, that he is not just all-powerful. He is not just the banner under which we march. He is not just the creator and sustainer of everything, but that he is also tender, that he is also empathetic, that he also guides and leads us. You know, one of the characteristics of sheep, I don't know how many of you have ever raised sheep. Anyone here ever raised sheep? Bobby, up in New York, raised sheep, did you ever? No? Jennifer did, though. She raised sheep. Okay, so you can correct me on this if I'm wrong. When you're trying to move sheep, you can't push them, right? Right. You lead them. You guide them. That's part of what it means when it says the Lord is my shepherd. He is drawing you. He is guiding you. He is taking you to safe places. All the things that David describes. He's making me lie down in green pastures. He's leading me beside still water. And so all of those characteristics describe the Lord who is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I'll have no need. I'll have no want. I got to tell you a quick funny story. It's funny how people read the Bible. I had somebody years and years ago 
say to me that he didn't understand Psalm 23. And he said to me, is the psalmist saying that he doesn't want God? He doesn't want Christ? And he said, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, you're, you're kind of misreading the want part. What it means is the Lord is my shepherd, so I'll have no needs. He's going to provide for me. He's going to take care of me. That is part of who the God of the Bible is. So, Wednesday night, we saw that our God is a consuming fire. But on the opposite side, he is the God who is tender. He is the God who is a shepherd. He is the God who guides you through this lifetime. He is the God who provides for you. His rod, his staff, they protect you and they comfort you and they they take care of you. So this, again, is something that you could not know about God if he didn't tell you that. If you only knew that God existed and that he was like he was at Mount Sinai, all thunder and lightning and a booming voice that scared the Israelites until they said to Moses, go tell him not to do that anymore. You go talk to him. If that's all you knew about God, you'd be terrified by that God. You'd live in constant fear of that God. Until he told you, I'm also tender. I'm also a shepherd. I also provide for you. By the way, the other places where the Lord as a shepherd is referred to is in Genesis, surprise, Genesis 48, 15, Genesis 49, 24, and also Psalm 80, verse 1, are all references to the Lord being my shepherd. Notice how often, again, these names are revealed right away. Are you familiar with Jehovah Rapha? This is a really important name of God. Jehovah Rapha means the God who heals. Now that name is not only talking about the fact that God is the one who heals our sicknesses, our diseases. If anybody here has ever been sick and you got well again, it's because you had an encounter with Jehovah Rapha. He healed you. He is the God who heals. But from a theological standpoint, we have seen repeatedly in the book of Isaiah, especially where Isaiah has described the state of national Israel as being sick, as being wounded. And he said, your wound is incurable and there is no soundness in your whole body from the top of your head to the sole of your feet. There is no health within you. And then the same Isaiah describes Christ when he dies on the cross, when he sacrifices himself, that by his stripes we are healed. So he's not just talking physical healing. He's saying there is a national healing coming for Israel, and that national healing is coming as a result of the finished work of Christ, because after all, God is the one who does the healing. And he does it through Christ, but he does it. So Jehovah Rapha, hold on to that name, the God who is in charge of healing. And of course, we know that Yahweh is our great physician. Exodus 15, 26 says, And he said, If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, Yahweh, your God, and do what is right in his sight and listen to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put no other diseases on you, which I have put onto the Egyptians, because I, the Lord, 
am your healer. That's God declaring that name for himself. I am Jehovah Rapha. Are you familiar with Jehovah Shammah? Have you heard that name? The reason I ask that question, I'm not trying to make people embarrassed that they don't know these things, but I'm hoping that you're getting a fuller comprehension of who God is and how gracious it was of him to reveal himself this way and that the methodology that he used to reveal himself is through the names that he gives himself. So I hope you're coming away with a greater appreciation of who God is and what God's like. Jehovah Shammah means the Lord who is there. Very specific. The Lord who is there. The Lord who constantly exists. The God who is right there in the midst of whatever you're going through. Wherever you are. Wherever in this universe you can point to. Whatever in this creation. There's no place where you can say, oh, God's missing from there. God is everywhere. That's why we say he is the omnipresent God. The all-present. He's present everywhere all at once. We know that. We theologically declare that. Because he gave himself the name. I am the God who is there. The name indicates that God has not abandoned Jerusalem. And in fact, the only time that we see this name is in Ezekiel 48.35. As God is describing the new Jerusalem to come. The city shall be 18,000 cubits all around. And the name of the city from that day on shall be called the Lord is there. Everywhere, the the Lord, wherever you go in his creation, he is there, and he revealed himself as the God who's there. That's good to know, by the way, next time you're going through a really bad episode, next time you're going through real trouble in your life, have you ever heard yourself say or caught yourself thinking, where is God in all this? Just remember that he revealed himself as the God who is always constantly, consistently Right there. Jehovah Sitkanu. Do you know that name? That means the Lord is our righteousness. Okay, that's a very theological name. Where are we going to get our righteousness? How are we going to stand before that holy God and not be judged? How are we going to stand before that holy God and not be cast into outer darkness? How are we going to stand before that God and not be Declared sinful before him? Or, as the book of Ephesians says, how are we going to stand in front of him and be called spotless and blameless? How does that happen? It's not going to happen because of us. It's not going to happen because we cleaned ourselves up and got so good that God accepted us on the basis of what we did. He's going to accept us because he is the Lord who is our righteousness. We would not know that. We would not know that theology. We would not know that God intends to infuse his own righteousness into us so that we are acceptable to him. We wouldn't know any of that had he not revealed himself as the Lord, our righteousness. The first Old Testament occurrence of Jehovah Sitkanu, it actually occurs two different times. It's first used in Jeremiah 23, 6. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live securely. And this is the name by which he will be called Jehovah Sitkanu. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But then they will say, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the household of Israel back from the Northland and from all the countries where he had driven and scattered them, and they will live here in their own soil. So in the midst of that promise of the restoration of Israel, God reveals himself by another name again. He is the God who is the righteousness of not only us, but of Israel. How is God going to restore Israel? Yes, they have rebelled. Yes, they have sinned. Yes, they have broken his law. And so is he going to put them away forever? He has scattered them. He has driven them out of their own land. Is he going to regather them? The Bible says yes. How is he going to accomplish it? Through his own righteousness. You're a sinful, depraved person. How is he going to accept you? By the very fact that he is the Lord, our righteousness. Sedek, which is the word from which Sitkanu derives, means to be upright, to be straight, and hence to be righteous in Hebrew. Jeremiah 33 is the other place where you find this name. I've really got to move if we're going to make it. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah 33, 16. When I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in those days and at that time I will make a righteous branch of David sprout, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. This is now the name by which Jerusalem will be called Jehovah Sitkanu. The Lord is our righteousness, for this is what the Lord says. David will not lack a man to sit on his throne over the house of Israel. Jehovah M. Kadesh is very much like the Lord is our righteousness. But even beyond that, the word Kodesh, you've heard me in the past uh, describe the Holy of Holies, the Hebrew language is the Kodesh Kodeshim. The only difference between those two words is the I am, the pluralization of the second word. Kodesh means holy. And so God reveals himself by the name Yahweh M. Kodeshkem, which is the Lord who sanctifies you. So he is our righteousness, but he is also the one that cleans up our sinfulness. He is also the one who makes us holy. He is also the one who separates us. He's also the only cause for our complete and utter justification before him. In the Old Testament, it's used twice. It's first used in Exodus 31, 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now, as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You must keep my Sabbaths, for this is the sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
I'm the Lord that separates you. I'm the Lord that makes you a separate people. I'm the Lord who chose you from all the peoples of the earth. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. I'm the one who makes you holy. I'm the one who dedicates you to myself. It can also be translated as the Lord who sets you apart. The Lord who makes you separate from this world. Leviticus 20 verse 8 is the other place where it's used. As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the prostitute with them, I will also set my face against that people and will cut him off from among his people. And you shall consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. So you will keep my statutes and you will practice them because I am the Lord who sanctifies you. God gives himself the name. I am the Lord that separates you. Jehovah Jireh, this is the one that people do kind of know, just like El Shaddai. If you know any of the Jehovah names, you probably know Jehovah Jireh. It means the Lord will provide. He's going to take care of you. In the Old Testament, Jehovah Jireh occurs only once. Guess which book? It's in the book of Genesis, Genesis 22. Again, God revealing himself as the God who provides. Genesis 22, starting at verse 11. Just then the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Abram was just about to kill his son. And the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Then Abraham looked up, and he saw behind him a ram caught in the thickets, caught by his horns. That means a substitute ram with his head in thorns. Can you draw your own parallel there? So he went and he took the ram to offer as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Okay, so theologically, even the very fact that Jesus came to the planet, even though we have a substitute, even though we have a sacrifice, all of that is the result of the fact that God provided it all. God who's going to sanctify us, God who is our righteousness, also provided the means by which he was going to accomplish all that. He was going to accomplish it through his son who he already provided, and he set out that scenario in type and shadow when Abraham was about to kill his son. And then there was a ram caught in the thicket because the Lord will provide. Okay, you're all going to know this one. This is a feel-good one. Jehovah Shalom. You know Shalom. It's peace. How many times have I, through the years, defined peace as the ceasing of againstness? God is the God of peace. He's the one who creates the peace between us and himself. We didn't do it. We didn't lay down our arms or our hatred against him. He's the one who made peace between us and him. In the Old Testament, Jehovah Shalom occurs in Judges 6.24. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He was afraid that he was going to die because he had seen the angel of the Lord. And the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not be afraid for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it Jehovah. 
Shalom. The Lord is my peace. And to this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Okay, last one of the Jehovah names. We are actually nearly done, and I'm surprised I'm going to make it. Jehovah Sabaoth. Growing up as a Lutheran kid, we used to sing a hymn about Lord God Sabaoth. And I always just sort of assumed it meant of the Sabbath. But it's got that O in there, Sabaoth. What it means is the Lord of hosts. What it means is the God who is in charge of the inhabitants of the earth and all the armies of heaven. He is the Lord of all the collective creation. He is the Lord of masses of people. Millions and millions and billions and myriads and myriads, more than any man can count, and yet he's in charge of all of them. He is the Lord of the hosts. So Jehovah and Elohim occur with this name, Sabaoth, over 285 times. God wants you to know that he is the Lord over everyone. His previous names describe him as being the God over everything. But this is a more personal name. He is also the Lord over everyone. That's the reason that he can be a shepherd. That's the reason that he can be a comfort. That's the reason that he can be our righteousness. That's the reason that he can be our peace. Because he is also the Lord, the absolute sovereign over everybody. It's first used in 1 Samuel 1.3, year after year, Elkanah would go up from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. You'll see it translated as the Lord of the armies, but it means that he is universally sovereign over every army of the earth, whether it's a spiritual army, whether it's a demonic army, whether it's an earthly army. The Lord of hosts is the king over heaven and earth, and he is in charge of everything and everybody, including all the forces that may be arrayed against you. He's still in charge of them. Those are all the Jehovah names. One last name. We saw it Wednesday night as we were reading out of the book of Isaiah. Our God, even though this isn't a proper name, this is a descriptor that he uses of himself six times. So I think it's significant that we recognize that this is something God says about himself. He says that he is Kana, which means he is jealous. He is the jealous God. It's used in the Old Testament, as I said, six times. First, it's used in Exodus 20, verse 5. As he was laying out his Ten Commandments, God spoke all these words, I am Yahweh, your Adonai, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He identified himself by name, by the Tetragrammaton, by the fact that he is the Lord, the master over everything, Adonai, you'll have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or in the waters beneath. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. For I, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, your Adonai, I am a jealous God. 
That means that what is his is his. And he doesn't let go of what's his. And if anybody else tries to take what's his, he's going to defend what's his. And if what's his shows affection for any other God, he will rise up in jealousy. And he will separate you. You know, all the way back in Genesis 1, we read that God formed division between the woman and the serpent. It was actually a very gracious act of God that he separated and put enmity between the serpent and the woman. God is still going to do that because he's a jealous God. That's how he acts. If you belong to him and anything else, anyone else, any other God tries to claim you, he's going to defend you. He's going to fight for you because you belong to him and he is a jealous God. And that's a good thing to know about him. Part of the reason that you can't be lost, part of the reason that you will persevere through the end of your life, part of the reason that's all going to be accomplished on your behalf is simply because he is a jealous God, and he's not going to let you go, and he is going to fight for you, and he is going to defend you, and he is going to provide for you, and he is going to bring peace to you, and he is going to separate you, and he is going to call you to himself, and he is going to guide you through this life, and he is going to preserve you all the way to your heavenly calling, and he's going to do all that because he chose you before the foundation of the world, and once he decided to do that, He's going to work by his almighty sovereign power to make sure that what he has declared is going to happen. And all of that that I am just describing, I am only describing it because those are the things he has already proclaimed about himself through the names that he has given himself. And so I think it's important that we know the names of God and we understand the names of God and we understand that he is Jehovah, he is Yahweh, he is Adonai, he is the sovereign God over everything who is our shepherd, who is our provider, who is our peace who is going to get us all the way home because he, after all, is jealous over us. You see why I wanted to add that word right there at the end? I hope when you walk out of here that this has been more than just an intellectual exercise. I expect that you've heard a name, hopefully today, that you didn't know before or had a chance to think about some attribute of God that you hadn't been thinking of. And you recognize that this is what God has revealed about himself. And so you bring yourself in line with what God has already said about himself so that you can say the same things about God that God says about God. I hope you walk out of here recognizing, praising, worshiping, celebrating that God in all his multiplicity of aspects that he has revealed to us. Because had he not revealed himself to us, there's no way any of us could have known him. Got it? Got it. All right, then grab a chorus book.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.